With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, everybody, Richard here. You know, we forgot to mention that Giovanni Savarese is on this episode. Kind of a big deal, right? Well, that comes in at about the half hour mark of the show. Until then, enjoy this episode of Soccer Made in Portland. From pitch side to print to the press box above Providence Park. It's Jamie Goldberg from the Oregonian and Richard Farley from the Portland Timbers and Thorns. This is Soccer Made in Portland. On the scene, all the time. Welcome everyone to Soccer Made in Portland. We're here at Providence Park on this ridiculously beautiful uh, October day. It does not feel like I'm in Portland. I I didn't even notice it until now, Jamie. This is an amazing day. I'm wearing like long sleeve shirt jacket and i was like out of the training facility just sweating through all my clothes oh, really yeah no i'm not i wasn't prepared for this i love it but i wasn't prepared for it at all but this view from the press box yeah, in providence park is always kind of amazing and it's kind of sad to see that the horizon's being blocked out a little bit by the stadium expansion of course next june when there are four thousand people over there yeah and no, there's I'm no place for, yeah there's no place for sound to it's, escape it's not like it's you know like rio tinto stadium i'd be really sad if they blocked out the view there it, yeah. it's not like the view of the downtown buildings here was something that I I felt the need that we had to keep here at Providence Park. Well, it's also with Rio Tinto. So for people who have never been out to Utah for a game there, it's in the middle of the Wasatch Valley. And in the horizon, as you look uh, to the north from the press box, you get to see the mountains. But they've also incorporated as an architectural feature, the roof on that side of the stadium curves to match the curve of the mountain range. So they ever ditched that yeah, that was no, it's... <laughs> that was bad idea bad idea so welcome to rsl talk yeah that's the way to go right into welcome to mls architecture talk <laughs> transitioning to rsl who's going to be playing here at providence park and not at the beautiful rio tinto stadium we're talking about well maybe as much as we talked about rsl last week because we went like 85 90 minutes last week which is kind of, no we did not. We went like 75 minutes last yeah. week. That's kind of our normal length. But do we have anything new to say about RSL, given that they didn't play this weekend? They don't play till Thursday. Maybe we can talk about that a little bit. And we talked about a lot of things from last Saturday's game. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I think the context of them playing midweek, um, I, I think, is obviously important. Um, whether they're going to be on short rest and how that's going to impact them in this game they, I think is relevant although we're not necessarily going to know the answer and I, I highly doubt we're going to see a ton of rotation at this point given that everything is on the line for RSL but do we think we're going to get a new set of, of disciplinary committee decisions because there were some disco decisions that were released on Friday but they're mostly targeted 
teams that had games on that weekend. RSL hasn't played since last game. They play on Thursday against New England in Utah. So on Wednesday, are we going to get a bomb from MLS that says Beckerman, Ramondo, they're not playing? Yeah, I, I mean, I guess that's possible. Obviously, that's not going to impact who plays against the Timbers. If anything well, comes out, Beckerman it's going it to impact. Beckerman's on yellow card yes, suspension. you're right. So, so it would impact. Right. For um, Ramondo, it wouldn't. For Ramondo, it wouldn't. It would only impact the, the Thursday game. I am going to say I don't think so at this point but yeah it was interesting to see no acknowledgement of that um in the disciplinary committee but at this point i think i've moved on from that and i'm assuming that the disciplinary committee has made their decisions and we would have seen it last week so it's going to be a surprise to me if something comes drops midweek on that this has happened before though when teams have buys they take extra time i think with clint dempsey it happened once is when he uh was it a Toronto player that he hit in the nether region one time? <laughs> uh, the, the, the Clint Dempsey is what we can call that. And it took an extra week for that decision yeah. to come out. We'll see. But I think also based on the, natures of the nature of the plays, too, not, I feel strongly that both of those should have been red cards. I can see the disciplinary committee not coming down unanimously on that. So we'll see how it goes. But there, are, there definitely are a lot of things to talk about still. I think some of the... Some of the aspects of last Saturday's game that turn into more forward-looking questions we left for this week, and there may be no question that's being asked more in the last week and a half than the question regarding the Timbers formation. What do you think, Jamie? Are we going to see a 4-2-3-1 formation again, and do you think we should? I mean, I really did like how it played out in RSL, and I thought it was an effective formation. Now, um, I I guess I'll say yes. I, I think the Timbers should go uh, continue seeing how that formation works and seeing if it, it can continue to be effective because it, it worked so well in Salt Lake. But I just don't know, given Giovanni Savaresi's history, and especially since part of what, uh, not I don't think the only reason it was effective, but part of the reason it was effective, it, it was that it definitely caught Salt Lake off guard. And I, I do wonder if Savaresi thinks that maybe going with the exact same formation is going to be too similar and would it allow Salt Lake to prepare for the Timbers in a way they, would, they were unable to prepare last week. I think Giovanni Safarese really loves the chess game yeah, that we're absolutely. alluding to here. Sometimes I wonder if he loves it too much. <laughs> yeah. uh, we've seen almost week-to-week t- tinkering, and I think the Timbers have had a good year, so I, it's hard to fault him too much. But I think they should go 4-2-3-1 again. But let me, let me throw a couple of scenarios at you, and you can tell me how much this might persuade you. What if coming off an international break, Andy Polo and David Guzman can't go 90 minutes? How does that affect your view as to whether they should stick with the four two three one? Yeah, I think part of the reason it was effective was how Guzman played. And so, especially in Guzman's case, I think it's a little bit more problematic. I think they really need a good partner alongside Chara in the four two three one that's going to be effective in the game. And if they don't think they have that player... I mean, they still could potentially put Lawrence Olm in there. They could change Char's role and have him sit deeper and maybe put Paredes back in the lineup or something. Um, but if they have to make those types of changes... Then yeah, just might... your tone of voice is kind of like, these are not perfect solutions. No, they're not perfect solutions. So yeah, I think if those players, particularly Guzman, um, can't go or only can go limited minutes, I, I think that probably would change um, maybe what formation they look at. Okay, let me give you another scenario. What if... You are of the belief that when you list out the Timbers' four best attacking players, Jeremy Willowisi and Samuel Armenteros are among those four. Does that change whether you think the team should go 4-2-3-1? 
Not necessarily. I, I think if the other options are available, I, I think having one of those players come off the bench is fine. I, I think just how effective we saw them play in Salt Lake, you probably give Abobasi another start and you let Armenteros come in off off the bench and, and see how that goes. I, I mean, I think that you have enough attacking talent in the game in that formation and it worked so effectively that even if it means leaving one of those players off the field, particularly, you know, like we've talked about, Armenteros hasn't been scoring a ton of goals recently. I don't think that's a terrible idea. I am going to be, I'm not going to be surprised if Jeremy Abobasi isn't starting on Sunday, but I'm probably going to be a little bit confused and a little bit disappointed because to me, and we've had so long to think about this, I have to go back a decent ways now to the last time I felt Samuel Armenteros was outperforming Jeremy Abobasi. Six weeks, seven weeks or so at this point with the off weeks and people going in and out of the lineup. So I ask myself, how long does Samuel Armenteros get to occupy the top spot on the depth chart? Form matters. We're not talking about who we think is the better player in the big picture or who we think is going to be the better player four months from now. Who's going to be the better player on Sunday? And in that regard... I think Jeremy Obobese has to be in the lineup. I think Seba, I think Diego Valeri have to. And so if you are going to stick with a 4-2-3-1, it's really hard to have Samuel Armenteros in your 11, in my opinion. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree there. I think that leads us into sort of what lineup changes we could see. I think we talked about um, a little bit about whether we saw Paolo Ridgewell coming back in last week. I think we just talked about sort of where we see Armenteros. Um, Adonella, though, was in training today. And so we'll get a better update from Savarasi on like where he is later today but if he's available I mean I I think he'll definitely be back in the lineup I would hope so Jeff Atnell has certainly earned that yes we have rarely seen this year where players are in the Tuesday practice and they're not available for the weekend things can always change a reoccurrence of the injury can happen and we've also rarely seen a case where players aren't in the Tuesday or Wednesday practice and do start on the weekend so whether players are fully training for a whole week is a pretty good indicator as to their availability for Giovanni Savarese. So I think that uh, I think that Gio might be cautious, as he always is with injuries, when we ask him about it, or we, when you ask him <laughs> about it in today's press conference. But I think for fans out there, uh, don't be surprised if Antonella is in. And if Antonella is out, there's probably a good reason for that, too. Yeah. Um, I don't think we mentioned, but the game on Sunday is going to be here at 2 p.m. And that will be all the games uh, on the Western Conference will be starting at 2 p.m. And all the games in the Eastern Conference will be starting, uh, I think, I love when they cram all the games onto the same time a week before the end of the season. Yeah, I think they would be doing that both weeks, right? Yeah, they're doing it next weekend, too. Uh, They're having pre-decision day and decision day. I I mean, I'm sure there's a good reason for it, so just take this as frustration. I don't see why we're doing this. I would like to watch a game earlier in the day. I'd like to watch some games on Saturday. I I don't see why we're doing this. To be honest, though, I don't even see why they do it overseas, too. Like, okay, it's the last game of the season. Things are being decided. Let's all kick off at the same time. Well, there are 37 other games in the season. You, you didn't think those games were important? They counted the same in the standings. Or you think that these professional players who have been in these scenarios their whole life can't adjust a little bit if, hey, there's a game three time zones away in the Russian League or something like that or the Brazilian League and they can't adjust for it? I just think it's kind of weird. But 
Maybe maybe it adds to drama. Do you think it adds to drama? I I, I think it adds a little bit to drama. Okay. It's, I, I mean, I, I think the reasoning for it, it's kind of strange to have it the week before decision day. I think the reasoning for it is they don't really want the teams, obviously, to know sort of what they need to do to, yeah. to get. They don't want it to impact the results. So, I, I mean, if the Timbers know they're already in it, then Savarese decides to start a brand new lineup or something, and they don't want those kind of situations to happen. So I, I get it. I don't really get it two weeks before the season's over. <laughs> no, I don't I don't get it either. But as you're already alluding to, there are situations where, say, RSL uh, drops points against New England midweek. Uh, I think that means the Timbers are in at that point because L.A. I don't think can get them. Vancouver can, though, still. Uh, Vancouver plays on Wednesday for everybody against Kansas City, so this might change. But, but L.A. can still get them. L.A. can tie them can, on points. And okay. then... In the in this scenario, LA would tie them on points, and Timbers would have to lose both games, so they'd finish with the same win total, and then it would become up to goal differential. But in that, we talked about this before. In that situation, LA would have won two games, the Timbers would have lost two games. So I think they're six apart in goal difference right now. So likely in that scenario, LA would pass them on goal yeah. difference too. Anyways, this is getting into minutia talk. There are scenarios even before the Sunday game in Vancouver where the Timbers might know their fate. So. I, again, just having all these games kick off at the same time, I just, it's not like you're, maybe you're solving the problem a little bit. Anyways, we're off track. Let's talk about the Timbers. One note that we have in here is something that I researched yesterday. The Timbers are on 51 points after 32 games. We haven't really stopped to consider what that means because the team has been so up and down this year, and particularly over the last two months, they've been really inconsistent. Until their trip to Salt Lake, they've been bad on the road. Good at home, but not super convincing at home. It turns out those 51 points through 32 games is the second highest total in club history through 32 games. Only the 2013 season, Caleb Porter's first, is higher. What does that even mean? I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I think in both seasons, uh, in, in, in 2013 and in this season, they both had 15-game unbeaten streaks. Mm-hmm. And, and when you have an unbeaten streak like that, I, I mean, you're just rocking up the points. And, and so I, I think... The Timbers have had had a really good middle of the season this year, and they put themselves in a great position, and that's why they are in a position right now where, like you alluded to, they could clinch. They could clinch, I believe, depending on Salt Lake and Vancouver's midweek games this week before they play this weekend. Mm -hmm. And and they're in that position because of the 15-game unbeaten streak that they had. Now, the beginning of the season was poor, but I think they solved that pretty quickly. They can put that behind them. And then this 11-game stretch prior to the RSL game was pretty poor. And maybe the RSL game was a turning point. It was definitely um, exciting to see them play that way. It was um, huge for them in the standings, and it was a lot of reasons to leave that game with optimism. And if they can now finish the season strong, which home game and potentially playing against a team that's eliminated from playoffs they have every possibility that they could potentially win the next two games then they could be going into playoffs in a good situation in good form so i mean i think when you look at the seasons there's just a lot of ups and downs to look at absolutely Um, and that's the the 15 game being streak is why they're on the point total they are i think i feel the same way as everybody else does about this team which is insecure yeah don't know whether to say strong things about them. Don't want to go in too much on them because they do have 51 points. So where do you lie? And I think it goes back to the result in Salt Lake. 4-1 victory on the road against a team that had only lost one other time at home this year. That sounds great. But my opinion is that RSL is not a very good team. No matter what that record said. You watch them, they're not very good. 
my opinion is that the Timbers were underperforming before. They should have gotten some road wins before, and that would have made that road win seem a little less special. But I think the one thing, having, what, 10 days now to think about it, it's not so much that I didn't think the Timbers weren't capable of those performances. I definitely thought they were. We just haven't seen it consistently. And one game, 90 yeah. minutes, that's not consistency. So it answered some questions for me in that they are capable of putting together a good performance on the road. We hadn't seen a lopsided victory like that on the road. They are capable of getting out of this funk that they'd had for a couple months. Okay, now are they capable of being consistent? And given the next opponent, I don't even know because I would expect them to beat RSL at home by multiple goals given the level RSL is performing at right now. Yeah, I, I mean, they, I think they should be favored to win uh, this weekend and they should likely be favored to win in Vancouver because at that point, uh, like I said, it's very likely that Vancouver is going to be eliminated and it's a winnable game regardless. Yeah, <laughs> caveat, <laughs> Vancouver's not good. Yeah, so even if they win the next two games, maybe we don't know how they're going to do against better competition, but I think that'll give them a lot of confidence going to the playoffs if they can build off this last RSL game, show prove that they can consistently play like that, and then head into playoffs potentially on a three-game winning streak. And a four-game unbeaten streak, and you add the second half against yep. Minnesota, that'll be four and a half halves in a row. I personally think the second half against Minnesota should just be thrown out the window. You've got a bad team that's a plus yeah, three. I, I just, But the game against Dallas, even though it was a 0-0 result, I thought it was a good performance. I thought RSL was a good performance. Again, on Sunday against RSL, I would expect another good performance. If they can carry four good performances in a row into the playoffs, yeah, only one of those teams I would say is a truly playoff caliber team. But in this league, it's hard to put four good performances together in a row. So in my mind, that would at least answer the consistency part of the equation. Yeah, I mean, we've. I think the, over the last few weeks, everyone's been alluding a little bit to 2015, and they were they were in a much worse position, 31 games into the season uh, in 2015. Ooh, yeah, than they were, were 31 games in the season this year. But they win the last three, and they carry that momentum and confidence and consistency into the playoffs, and they ride that all the way through MLS Cup. And that's, I mean, that's how this league works. If if you are the team playing the best soccer at the end you're in a really great position to make a, a good run in the playoffs. So I, this season can go a lot of different ways right now, depending on how they finish out the next two games and whether RSL was a real turning point or, or whether it was just sort of a um, an anomaly. Now, one thing that you alluded to before that we should talk about here, especially since Vancouver plays on Wednesday, RSL plays on Thursday is the playoff scenarios. And while it can look kind of complicated because there are three or four teams that are affecting the Timbers' fate, in order to finish above the red line or finish below the red line for the Timbers, two of three teams have to win out. Yeah. The Galaxy, Vancouver, RSL. If two if two of those three teams drop points at all, yeah. the Timbers are in. So, like you said, if if Vancouver draws or loses against Kansas City and RSL draws or loses against New England, the Timbers are into the playoffs before the kickoff on Sunday. Yeah. So that's the good situation that they're in. I want to take a little bit of time to talk about the New England game because New England actually got a 2 to nothing victory over Orlando this weekend. It was only their second win since summer, I think. And you look at RSL coming this weekend, they have two midfielders suspended with yellow card accumulation, Sonny and Kyle Beckerman. Albert Rushnak is not going to be back for the game because he's on international duty in Europe. Those are three players out of their midfield that they're going to be missing. And the one thing that Timbers fans might remember about the Revolution is they run at you. Every time they lose the ball deep, they just run like hell at you. 
I really like New England's chances to get a result there, even though New England's not a good team, but RSL's not a good team, and RSL's missing their, all of their midfield. I really like New England's chances to get a draw on Thursday. Yeah, I, I think it's quite possible that the Timbers go into Sunday's game having already clinched the playoff berth. Actually, I just cursed New England. Yeah, RSL's going to win 5-2. I, mean, I mean, these teams know that they have a lot to play for. So yeah. it's a question, can a bad, not necessarily a bad team, but can a team that's not necessarily the best team in the league just rise to the occasion because they know how much is on the line. And, and that I think that does push teams forward when they when they know their backs are against the wall. I mean, that you hear the Timbers talking about it all the time. It does push teams forward, but um, the Timbers have a lot of opportunities, even if they do nothing, to, to make sure they're in the playoffs. Absolutely. Well, Jamie, let's talk a little bit more about those playoffs before going to listener questions, because there is one question that I want to ask you. It's a derivative of a question that we've been hearing a lot what are the possibilities regarding the timbers and their first round matchup who might they play will they be going to seattle or kansas city or maybe they get seattle or rsl at home screw the scenarios if you were the timbers who would you want to play in that play-in round well i think if rsl is a possibility that that's the one well, this I would is an say. easy question isn't yeah it? but I, I think I, i'm not sure that rsl really will be realistically because even if you're saying rsl is going to make playoffs they're probably going to finish in six I, I don't really see the timbers jumping to third um so if the if the question is mostly between seattle and kansas city at this point i'd adapt which i think are the mo- most two most likely options i'd absolutely uh prefer uh, as a timbers fan to see them play kansas city because i I just think, like I said before, you don't want to play the team that's in the best form. And Seattle has been in the best form for a couple of months now. Yeah. Really, one of the two or three best teams in Major League Soccer ever since they incorporated Raul Rui Diaz into the lineup. I kind of go back and forth a little bit. Ultimately, I end up in the same situation you do. I'd like to face Kansas City, even if that means going to Kansas City midweek, but because Seattle's form has just been so good. But... The Timbers have outplayed Seattle three times this year. They lost yeah. one of those games, but they outplayed them. They have not looked great against Kansas City two times this year. One time it was a stalemate. The other time it was a disaster. So I think about that. And then I think of something that's a little bit, I think, overly complicated. I think Seattle's the best team in the Western Conference. I think whoever wins is probably going to have to go through Seattle. I, Seeing how Giovanni Savarese has put in great game plans against NYCFC, against Atlanta, for one-game scenarios, I wouldn't mind if the Timbers have to beat Seattle. It's a one-game scenario instead of a two. I think that the likeliest circumstance, and it's not in the Timbers' control, I think most likely, even if the Timbers win out, I think... The Timbers are going to finish in fifth. And they're going to go to? They're probably going to go to Seattle. Yep. I've, uh, I've already got the, the drive yeah. planned in my head. They, they're probably going to go to Seattle. And I think I disagree. that I do not think going on the road to Seattle in the playoffs when they're in good form. I don't care what game plan Savaresi puts out. Jamie, what's I the Timbers' record difficult. in the playoffs at Seattle in their MLS history? <laughs> you know, maybe. You're right. You know, Ryan Johnson is still in town. We can get him here just for, <laughs> just for old time's sake. That was kind of cool. I've been going up to UP more lately, and Ryan Johnson has been showing up to these I didn't games. I he was still in town. I didn't know he was. I, don't, I guess he's not officially retired, but he hasn't played for a couple years ever since he was let go, I think, early last season by the Oklahoma City Energy. But apparently he's settled in in Portland, and you can you can all see him at Merlot Field randomly. I mean, I know he's trained with the Timbers at times. This is so mm-hmm. off topic. But I know he's trained at times, and, and everyone freaks out and says, oh, is Ryan Johnson coming back? And they're like, no, we're, we're just doing a favor for a local guy that's been with the team. Yeah, they can have, like, all guest <laughs> teams. Like, all guests alone for this year where uh, Ryan Johnson is in, Jorge Velazquez is in there, and we can get a whole team together. <laughs> uh, you want to do some listener questions? 
or you want to wait? Let's ask the flip of our previous question. Well, I think we kind of yeah, Seattle is the team. I you mean, Seattle is the team we want to avoid. I mean, I, I think you'd probably want to avoid LAFC and Dallas too, but I don't think that's going to be an option for that knockout game. Yeah, maybe uh, I can see a scenario where Dallas keeps struggling and LAFC, I'm not, not LAFC, but Seattle keeps climbing. Uh, but yeah, I think even though I'm saying you know I'd rather have Seattle in one game instead of two. It's a weird machination. I think Seattle's the strongest team in the Western Conference right now. I don't think the Timbers are so far out of their league, but Seattle over the last three months have proved it. Yeah. All right, let's go to listener questions. Mike, with the crew staying on staying in Columbus, why would the league want Austin over Sacramento? The fan base is strong in Sacramento. Yeah. I think uh, this is going to be an interesting... I want to see where you sit with this because <laughs> we are both native Californians who have been up here for around a decade at this point. How, how Californians feel, especially coastal Californians, <laughs> feel about Sacramento is interesting. So, Jamie, you go first. Okay, well, I wasn't going to bring my own feelings about Sacramento into this. You can if you'd like, but um, I, I think that Sacramento would be a better market for MLS to go into right now. I think they've shown that they have the fan support there and it would be a great MLS team. I don't think that matters because the ownership that – the pre uh, pre court, they need to. They've come to this deal where the crew can stay in Columbus under new ownership, but they still within that deal, they're still giving pre court the chance to have a team, and he wants to be in Austin. And now I'm wondering why is he zeroing in on Austin? Like this question implies, because he had to choose Austin to get out of his crew his crew lease. That was the only out that he had negotiated. Okay, if you don't own the crew anymore. You're not tied to Austin. Maybe he just feels he's so far down the road with Austin. But like Mike, the questioner is implying here, in a world where everything is wide open now, why are you focused on Austin? I mean, maybe, but I, I don't think he'd have the option to have Sacramento because I they have their own ownership. I I just think that, that might, that's a market that he's already, like you said, um, kind of already started the process with. And he I, could I abandon think two cities instead of he one. He could, he could. I, but I don't think that would lead to Sacramento being there. So, I mean, he would just pick another city that there's no uh, set uh, team already established. So I, I think it's just because of the ownership that they're focusing on Austin. I think it's a disappointment. This, this whole situation is a disappointment. And I, I think ultimately Sacramento, yeah, is probably not going to end up with a team unless MLS continues expansion to even more teams. Um, and I don't really think that's right. I think Sacramento deserved, I've been saying that since the first, since they were in the round of expansion, I think they've deserved this, but um, I, I think they've gone with maybe, you know, sexier markets. Yeah. I don't know about deserved. I think that I just haven't thought about that too much. I think that Sacramento for some time has proven that it has a fan base, but maybe we've talked about this on the show before. The problem with that is that you have set a bar and it's actually unclear whether they can raise that bar, but it's a good bar. And new groups keep coming in and jumping over that bar. So Sacramento is in this like very weird existential place. We prove that we are an MLS market, but essentially what happened after that is that you change the definition of what an MLS market should be. And the answer is just kind of like, yeah. What do you want us to do? Not go to Cincinnati because you, like you were an MLS market at one time? Well, Cincinnati, for the same reasons that you want a team, gets a team because they're doing better in those things. Okay, it's not just about Cincinnati, but these other ones. Yeah, I think Sacramento would be fine. I think Austin probably would be fine. To, to be honest with you, I, I honestly don't know if those are even the two best markets to talk about. And I don't know enough about Austin to say whether it's better than Sacramento, bottom line. I think Sacramento would be a fine market, but I also would think it would end up being kind of like a, a Columbus or a San Jose where you're like, yeah, it's fine, but are they going to be able to keep up with the league? And how do you think Miami will be? 
I think Miami <laughs> will be very successful, unfortunately. From from my years there, uh, I say unfortunately because I someday I wa- in the in the far off future. Yeah, I I think once they get going, they're going to be very successful. Uh, but it is kind of funny to see how people react, and that's the whole reason I said unfortunately. I think you're just supposed to say unfortunately when you mention Miami, but once it actually gets there, I think it's going to be good. Andy, Andy asked, does T two playing Aspria? And Barnby make it seem like they are part of the organization's long-term plans. I don't think that them playing with T2 necessarily means that the organization sees them as long-term first-team players or, or anything like that. I think that, and I think Cameron Knowles has talked about this a lot, that it's important to have veteran leadership within the the organization so that the young players are sort of developing and they have players to look to, like maybe Jack Barnby, who's been around for a little bit. I think in Espria's case, it, it's been a matter of getting him minutes as he's sort of fallen off the radar with the first team a little bit um, more recently. And, and so I actually will be very surprised if Espria is part of the Timbers' long-term plans. And Jack Barnby, I have to look up his age. He's still sort of young. But I think he's 23. Yeah. I, I don't know why I said that because I don't know for sure, but I think, I think he's 23. You can look it up. But I think that... Do we have the internet here probably? We have the What's internet. Um, I think that he's, he's, he's 23, so right on the money there. It's almost like I hang around with these guys. I think he's a guy that they could continue working with and seeing where it goes for maybe another year or so, but it's been tough for him. He hasn't really come close to breaking into the first team. And I, I definitely don't think they're banking at this point that he's going to be a first team player in the long term. Yeah. There's nothing that we've seen from Jack Barmy that tells us that he is going to impact uh, a Portland best 11, a Portland Timbers 18 anytime soon. So to the degree that there's potential there, it's potential that's beyond our eyes right now. I don't think Dyron Espria would have gone down to Phoenix if Victor Arboleda was healthy. So I don't know that there is anything that has changed with his place in the organization by being down there at T2. But it's a good question that Andy asked if we kind of get to the guts of it a little bit. What, from what we see at T2, can we project for these players going forward as far as their careers are concerned, as far as where they fit into the first team's picture. And it's very different depending on the player. Some players are there because of the experience that they bring. Other players, like we've talked about before, Marvin Loria, Renzo Zambrano, they look like they're legitimate first team contributors going forward. I will say this about Jack Barnby. Quietly, one of his most important parts of T2 is that he rooms with Foster Langsdorf on the road. He's provided kind of a an anchor for Foster Langsdorf as he's been transitioning into his pro career. Jack is young, but he's had five years of professional experience at this point. So having him to help bring Foster out of that uh, <laughs> that Palo Alto cocoon and into the rough world of non-private school farm living, uh, not that Foster needed that. A guy grew up in Vancouver. He's very familiar with with what's around here but having somebody like that to be a touchstone for somebody like foster langsdorf has been pretty valuable um bobby asked another t2 question lots of t2 questions that's awesome to yeah, get that response they're in playoffs Absolutely. i don't know if you'd heard I don't know. oh my god what were they doing on saturday <laughs> um, bobby asked now that t2 is in the playoffs and they will play their playoff game friday at phoenix do they have any additional restrictions in terms of who can be loaned down they do uh, additional just meaning the rules for the playoffs kick in, you have to have made five appearances in the regular season to be loaned down. I don't know if there are any uh, emergency scenarios where that ends up being alleviated based on if you're a goalkeeper, if the rules are different, or if there are injuries. Uh, you have to have made five appearances, and then there's a roster freeze 
late in the season uh, for USL teams, and one of your appearances has to be within the window between the roster freeze and the end of the season. So uh, I think you were telling me that part of the context of this is like, well, if they really wanted to win this, couldn't they have? J- could they just send down Sebastian Blanco? <laughs> well, they would have had to plan it out a little bit longer than that. And I think it's actually a big fault of the whole organization yeah, that they, they didn't play the long out. game on this. They should have. They should have. <laughs> Trophies matter. Yeah. There is a there is a USL trophy in the trophy case as you walk in a USL regular season title trophy case. I don't know why they don't. I really don't know why this organization. Yeah, I mean, why is why didn't they plan ahead and have Blanco play on Friday and then come straight back and play on Sunday here? I, I don't know why. <laughs> we, we that is something that we should ask somebody. Who do you think would be the best person to ask about that? Yeah, let's ask. Um, who should ask you? Giovanni that. Question. You know what? We're Probably gonna not. we're gonna stop this podcast right now. Go get Giovanni Savarese and do this fifteen minute interview we did with him on Tuesday at Providence Park. Well, Gio, thank you so much uh, for coming on the podcast. I think we had you on earlier this year, but it's been quite a while. I had a different host, I think, back then. (laughs) So thank you so much for coming on. My pleasure to be with you guys. So I wanted to start by asking just uh, about, I think you've been asked a lot about what have you learned, what 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 adjustments you've had from a coaching um, aspect. I'm interested in what has most surprised you about Portland and uh, adjusting to the city here. I think it's been uh, a great experience because I didn't know much about Portland. Coming here, I enjoy the city, the calmness, the quality of life that there is in Portland, Um, the vicinity of everywhere that you go to, even though people tell you, oh, you got to go all the way, 50 (laughs) minutes away from me, 50 minutes away, it's right here. So it's been been pretty easy uh, for my family, my daughter going to school close by, you know, everything is... um, a walking distance and, and, and being able to spend a little more time uh, with my daughter, with my, my, my wife uh, is great, you know, coming from work. So uh, in New York, you know, I love New York, uh, but it's more traffic. Uh, so being able to, to be here um, in, a, in, a, in a city that is calmer has been great, as, besides the fact that there's some very good restaurants, <laughs> besides that there's good people. Uh, I've been enjoying Portland, um, and that's the city, besides the organization, which... Uh, uh, I'm very content to be part of uh, of this organization. And just following up on that, you mentioned your family, and I don't think a lot of people know that your family wasn't here for, for much of the season. Um, how has that changed for you, the experience having them now here settled <laughs> in with you? Now, you know, when you go back home, I think, I think let, me, let me rephrase that. I think it was important for me first to be by myself here. Uh, you always want the family to be with you, but uh, I think uh, the beginning uh, was important for me to mainly focus on, on everything that I had to do uh, to get things right. Um, and, uh, and it was, I think, important for me to spend the amount of time that I had spent uh, in my office and uh, in the, the practice facility to, to make sure that we get things right. Um, the family came in. It gave me the time to be able to organize certain things for them to come in a better situation. And and I'm glad now to be able to go back home, see them, be able to go and watch my daughter play volleyball. And uh, so it's great to have the family. Of course, I miss them during that time, but uh, it's great now that they're here. I'm excited to hear your daughter's a volleyball player. We'll have to talk about that <laughs> she's a time. soccer player, but now she's been playing volleyball. These are like two yeah. of my three favorite sports. <laughs> volleyball is right below basketball on the list. Um, how did your family react to the idea of re- relocating uh, across a continent? I've been a fortunate man because my wife has been supportive uh, all the time, and she understood that it was um, the right thing for me to do, um, the right club for me to to be part of. 
and it was just about planning how we can do the best planning uh, to make sure that everything is right. And uh, she has always supported me, helped me in every single way. And, uh, you know, it's not easy, you know, especially mm-hmm. when you're in a city for so many years, for, for my wife, so many friends, so many uh, people that she knows, family. Uh, but I can tell you that she's, in, she's been enjoying Portland. As I said, the quality of life, uh, the calmness uh, of the city has been very good. I remember when I was 14 years old and my parents told me we were moving, I almost built a <laughs> built a, a fort in my room and wouldn't have come out of it. And eventually they convinced me. But I think if I was moving to Portland, I'd be kind of excited about it, mostly because the reputation Portland has for being a weird place. How weird have you found Portland? What's the weirdest parts about Portland that you've seen so far? Uh, that's, a, that's a tricky question. Uh, that's <laughs> definitely a tricky question. Uh, no, I listen, I, I, I enjoy the city. I enjoy the city. And... Uh, I'm always one that looks at everything in a positive eye and, and, and the beauty of each place. And, and I've seen so many good things about Portland that uh, I don't need to look at anything else, you know, and uh, going to T2 games and seeing how many people uh, go there and, and especially the, the thorns, you know, coming here at the stadium. Uh, you know, it, it's been great all around being part of this organization, being part of this city um, and uh, enjoying the food, enjoying the family now. So a lot of positives. Um, with sort of the season, obviously the transition from NASL to this level, uh, it's obviously better competition. But what have been the biggest things that you feel like you've learned um, that you've and adjustments you've had to make as a coach moving from NASL to MLS this year? Yes, I think I think first of all, uh, the NASL was a very competitive league and had uh, some good teams. So. It, it was a, a very good uh, league for me to to be participating, especially to be able to coach a, a historical club like the New York Cosmos and having the the fortune to sit down occasionally with uh, people like Pele, Carlos Alberto, Giorgio um, Quinaya, you know these these type of players that they can tell you stories from World Cup national teams. Uh, uh, all the way to you know life. So um, being fortunate to be able to sit down with all these people, um, but also uh, the league. You know, especially the last year had only eight teams, so we had to play like four four games against each team. So imagine preparing, you know, to play four times against each, each team becomes even more difficult. Um, and uh, you know, in, in the transition now to to MLS is has been good. I've been following MLS. I started in MLS. Uh, I've been broadcasting, you know, with ESPN for 11 years, MLS. So I, I know it's set out, but being able to be now here, uh, it's been it's been great. And um, of course, the game is a little faster. Um, I think the that the, the thing has that has helped MLS has been now, you know, the, the new DPS, the, the TAM players that, that make the level higher. The fact that every stadium now there's uh, a lot of people coming to watch, and, and, and that each team brings you something different, and there's not a game that is going to be the same after the other. So you have to prepare constantly. So um, for me, the good thing also in the Cosmos, I used to do basically almost everything, you know. So I, now I can concentrate in, in coaching more than anything else, and and that's a good thing, you know. That's one of the transitions. Having Gavin, having you know Nick uh, with the sports science. Having uh, so many people around to be able to help uh, and everybody doing their part is, is a great thing to be part of the Portland Timbers in, in that sense and, and in Major League Soccer. Coach, I want to learn a little bit about Venezuela for you, from you. Because <laughs> from the outside, I know that Venezuela 
is a big baseball nation. <laughs> it's a continuing to rise soccer nation, hoping to get to that World Cup berth. But what was it like growing up in Venezuela, developing as a soccer player there? Because I, I feel like I hear a lot about Argentina and Colombia and Brazil, <laughs> but not a lot about Venezuela. It's interesting question, interesting story uh, in regards to Venezuela and soccer. Um, first of all, uh, Venezuela has always had a lot of soccer in youth. Uh, so being able to play in, in Venezuela soccer wasn't a difficult thing. You know, even though we have, have been always known for developing great baseball players, um, I think we, bec we we had the fame mostly for two reasons. Of course, the great players that came here to the United States to, to be successful, but also we are in a region that uh, baseball is not big and soccer is the only thing. Mm -hmm. And uh, being able to be also a nation that had baseball and successful baseball uh, put us only in that face of, you know, they only play baseball. Oh, I, you yeah, know? but I never thought about that before. Yeah. That also gives the country incentive to keep pursuing baseball. Exactly. So there were a lot of great things, you know, in, in pushing players to want to play baseball, kids you know having the they thought about uh, becoming uh, uh, professional baseball players because they were going to have a better living and you know and and, and the talent is there uh, but soccer always was very good at youth and and because we didn't have have that many great results with the national team it was always thought that we're not we were not a soccer nation um, and and also a lot of the parents to be honest with you a lot of the parents they wanted the kids to go to school uh, and get a degree more than become uh, professional mm -hmm. soccer players so I can tell you many of my friends that were very good very good soccer players they, they their parents will say listen you better use that to get a scholarship in the united <laughs> states or yeah. or you better use that to go to school but you're playing only 18 and uh, but then there's been there was a change there was a change uh, that came with first with pastoriza the argentinian coach who came to the national team and changed a little bit the mentality we start getting better results uh, then richard pais came and and the, the venezuela national team that was always known as a vino tinto, vino tinto but not not in the great scale now we pay, became the the vino tinto of, of everyone in venezuela so a lot of kids wanted to be part of it a lot of kids saw soccer now as a way of you know of, of uh being in the future and and, and from that point on, uh, we start getting better results, better players. You know, uh, um, they be more focused on developing the professional league, and and we have had now the recognition to have so many players going overseas. When I used to play, mm -hmm. I was one of the few long rangers uh, Venezuelan yeah. playing overseas. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, now there's uh, there's a lot of great players out there, and and we are you know we're very respected. But the youth is still the same as it used to be when I was a little kid. Yeah. And my parents being Italian they love you know to watch soccer they would love seeing and taking their son me and my brother to go play soccer so that was always there so I was for sure going to be a soccer player yeah this kind of <laughs> sounds like a country I know where youth teams are good up until the point of college <laughs> and if people get distracted and the development isn't there exactly. I think it was a Dutch coach's name is Leo Beanhocker came over here and just said you guys are so good until you're 17 and then you forget about football <laughs> yeah, it kind of sounds like the same I love in some way yeah. to ask uh, one more question sort of on your background um, in terms of your coaching development and identity and tactics, I, I think it's been a surprise, or not really surprised because we knew from the NASL, but it's been a change to see your willingness to go from formation to formation and make lineup changes from game to game and have, throw all these different things in. Um, how do you you've, how did you sort of develop uh, that as part of your coaching identity? First of all, I've been always... Uh a soccer fanatic lover of tactics and learning always more and, and understanding that there's always a way to be able to 
you know, uh, keep on growing as a coach, as a passionate for the sport. And since I was young, I always liked to sit down and listen to people talking about the game and um, had the fortune to be able to have some good coaches. Uh, also, some maybe coaches that have learned how not to do things, <laughs> you know, and uh, and and, and um, being able to have different experiences as a soccer player. And in all those experiences, I not only lived as a player, but also in the post-player, uh, you know, uh, event. So what will come after? Um, and always coaching was something that I that I enjoyed. Then when I, you know, when I had to make the difficult decision to retire because I had an offer to become the sporting director of uh, Metro Stars, which wasn't Red Bull yet, to handle the youth, the sporting director job at that time wasn't the way it is now. You know, it was more focusing on the youth and everything that had to do with sport. But the first team had their own, you know, the general manager, the coach. Um, and, and at that time, I think it was uh, Bob Bradley, actually, I think, was the, the, the head coach um, of the Metro Stars. And, um, and it, was, it, it was, for me, uh, you know, a change, but uh, I enjoyed it because I was excited about learning more, applying uh, everything that I learned. Um, I had a, you know, a little coaching uh, time in, in St. John's University as an assistant coach prior to retiring. And always every time that I had the chance to coach in youth and camps and things like that, I always took it very seriously. So for me, it was very important um, all the time. And then from that point on was youth, uh, what I you know, stay more involved. But always had the, when I had the chance to be able to travel to different places, I was went to Barcelona for a week to to be with Guardiola in, in Barcelona and see how they work with the first team, the youth. Um, had many friends in friends in the sport and and being able to go see them, you know, coaching and in their practices, it was very good for me. And then once I uh, decided to go to you know professional coaching and that I was uh, given the job in the Cosmos in 2012. Um, I had no doubt that that was the direction for me and that every year I had to learn more and more. And um, so, of course, uh, through that process, I felt more comfortable with some formations and from ideals. And I had my, 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 my beliefs very clear and what I wanted. But every year, you know, you grow more and more. And, and I think, you know, you as a coach, you have your ideal scenarios and the things that you love the most. But sometimes you also have to adapt to players and, and, uh, and to what you think might be the best scenario for the players in that process of getting also where you want to be. And, um, and you have to be tactical, flexible in those moments in, in being able to make sure that the transition goes the best possible way. That feeds perfectly into the area I want to talk about, you know, through watching your team develop and also watching how you manage games from zero to 90. It's given me an opportunity to talk about concepts like catenaccio and the way that, you know, in Italy, that philosophy of approaching the game developed. And I've written about how you can almost see the Spanish influence, not the Spanish influence, the Italian influence in you and just how you're, you're willing to patiently wait for the game to evolve before making your big tactical moves. To what extent do you agree with that? To what extent do you agree that a lot of the tactical influences that you're showing are Italian derived. I think I think uh, I learned a lot. Uh, not only me, I think many coaches can tell you that Italy has been very good for them. You know, starting from Guardiola and, and many others that have been able to to play in, in Italy because the game is very tactical. They make you think a lot. You know, especially when you're a player. Sometimes you know this moment that you go like you have to do things over and over and rethink it and they push you and they, but it, it, you know they, they make you think. Um, I feel that personally, I've been always a coach that is more offensive minded than defensive minded. 
but also I'm one that uh, recognizes that you know you need to be strong defensively if you want to be able to have a good season. Um, mm. it, you can only uh, feel that uh, that the attack is the only thing. You have to have a great balance, and I think while you're growing in that area, you know your defense has to be strong, and uh, and I think uh, you have to be able to adapt to different scenarios. So for me, this season has been has been good to be able to apply certain things, to be able to interact with the players, to make sure that we're all on the same page. And that's why I said before that I'm very content, I think, where we are right now because I think uh, the entire team, all of us, we see exactly where we want to be, where we are trying to, what we're trying to bring. And, and, and I think it's been a, a, a season that that adaptation from the players has been very good. In, in terms of sort of navigating the season and getting to, to the point where you feel like the players are where you want them to be, obviously the game against Salt Lake was a huge win for you guys and, and a great performance. Um, and the 15-game unbeaten streak was, was really important too. You had that sort of stretch of 11 games after the 15-game unbeaten streak, that especially on the road, were up and down. How did you sort of navigate that stretch and get to a point now where the players seem to be moving now in the right direction that you want? Hey. It's, it's a balance. It's a balance first in, in making sure that the guys feel fresh, that the guys feel rested, because sometimes, you know, you get to a moment which is very common uh, that you want to push the guys so hard that you get into a point that they cannot give you everything that they have because they they already given it. Uh, so it's important to make sure that you balance things out, that practices uh, are built from the preseason well enough to to give a good foundation, but also when, when the moment comes that you are towards the end of the season, it's more about how fresh they can be and, and reiterate you know, the, the important points of the foundation and how you want to play. Um, and I think we've done that. I think the guys are feeling you know, in in a good in a good way to to uh, confront everything that we're gonna face right now, and and hopefully, as we said before, have a very good momentum uh, in these two matches, and hopefully, in something more after. Okay, coach, I have some quick hit questions for mm-hmm. you. In terms of influences, other coaches you've looked to as far as to draw inspiration, I tend to think that this goes into I like his tactics, I like his man management. Who are some coaches from a tactical perspective that you've drawn inspiration from? Always, always, I think on the field, I have loved the coaches that are able to bring a good fluidity of, of play and uh, in teams that can manage them all more um, in possession, you know, and, and be able to be difficult to uh, to stop because they bring always um, the element of surprise in the way they attack. It's never one way. And I think Guardiola has been fantastic in, in that sense to be able to, to do, you know, to do that. But it's been uh, all the you know uh, all the coaches uh, that you know that you have to enjoy. That. I'm not one to say I only follow this. I'm constantly, constantly watching games after games, and, and sometimes from games that you don't even think. Which my wife says, I can't believe you're watching. You know, uh, Latvia against uh, Cyprus. You know, mm-hmm. the, <laughs> you know, we wa- we like to watch everything because you never know how you can continue to learn in, in different matches. Uh, but then the the aspect the aspect also that that is very important is the the, the team management management outside the field um, and there's guys like Lancelotti which you know I had the pleasure to to be able to share and, and be with him Sir Alex Ferguson uh, that I had the chance to sit down and have breakfast with him and, and, and listen to you know his advices and, and how he was able to manage an unbelievable you know uh, yeah. club for so many years so there's so much to learn so much you know but I, I've been you know fortunate enough to be around so many people that I I constantly continue to to watch, learn, and, and this is my passion to, to, to keep on learning. Yeah, that was my follow-up to talk about 
people in terms of their man management. Ancelotti is the nicest guy that you'll meet in this business, mm-hmm. so that comes to mind immediately. Um, one player that you would most want to coach, Oof. They either retired or still active. There's there's different players. I mean, I'm, I had the fortune in the Cosmos to to coach. I will say three three fantastic players. Yeah. You know, in in Juanarango. Who, who was my uh, room, uh, my uh, teammate in the national team of Venezuela, Raul from you know mm-hmm. from Spain, in which he pushed me to make sure that I every practice <laughs> was sharp and good because otherwise yeah. uh, it would go the other way. This and, is the Raul <laughs> we've heard about. <laughs> and Marco Sena, uh, you know, uh, who was a fantastic player, you know, so three unbelievable top top notch players that I, I feel fortunate to have coached. Um, but uh, being able to coach uh, a Valeri Blanco, Chara, I mean, um, I said it also. Chara, when I was in, in the Cosmos, if you took and you told me, who would you pick from MLS right now at this particular moment, and it's only one, I would have chose Chara. Mm. So, you know, I'm content to to be coaching all the players that I have because I believe in them, and, and, uh, and, and that's it. Anything else, Jamie? Well, we can give we can give Coach Savarese the same opportunity we gave Coach Parsons to interrogate you for a little bit. We, oh. we, we talked to Coach Parsons, and at the end of it, I didn't tell Jamie I was doing this. I said, okay, now's your chance. What All these questions you've wanted to ask Jamie Goldberg over the year, now's your chance. And I can't remember what he asked, but, oh, I think at the hard ones. Yeah. A tough one, huh? He yeah. prepared well. He prepared Coach well. Coach Parsons actually asked you to identify one mistake that you thought he had made. He mm. did. <laughs> <laughs> I'm giving Coach a chance to think of one question that he might have wanted to ask you throughout the year. So how has been the most difficult question that you had to ask me during the year? Um, <laughs> pro- probably, uh, you know, having to ask about, I think it's always the hardest when you have to ask about specific players being away from the field. So in terms of Liam being away from the field has been probably the most difficult thing we've had to talk about this year definitely no i i agree and uh, but i think the good thing has been the communication it's been good so i have enjoyed that part as well thank you again to giovanni savaresi for coming on the podcast it's uh really we should have just had him talk the whole time we we don't need to analyze he knows what's actually going on but one thing i think about i always feel a little bit bad when i call him geo even though everybody does (laughs) I, i feel like it's a little bit familiar a little bit disrespectful because there are other things I can call him. Like at practice, I'll call him profe, but that's basically like as a hint, like, hey, I kind of want to speak Spanish sometimes <laughs> to improve my Spanish. Uh, I'll call him coach. I call every coach coach. I sometimes call him Gio and I feel guilty. Yeah, I don't know. I've been calling him Gio since he first showed up, and I remember him t- asking the media, or someone in the media said, do you go by Gio, Giovanni? And he's like, Gio for my friends. And yeah. I just decided that you decided I was you're his friend. <laughs> I do no. remember that, and I was like, okay, yeah. for a couple of months, I need to call him Giovanni. Yeah. And I think I, I just I called just, him Coach Aprofe. Gio's just way easier to say than Gio. And every single person calls him Gio. Yeah, it's it's hard to make that transition. I've been calling you Gio since before you came here, so. Speaking of transitions, friend of Gio, we have a hot take interlude to do. It's named after Chris Reifer, the notorious Chris Reifer. Chris <laughs> Reifer Memorial hot take interlude. I went first last week. You're going to go first this week. Tell us what you're hot about. Yeah, um, I'm not going to talk anymore about the notorious Chris Reifer, but <laughs> um, no, I'm I, I the wanted, NCR. <laughs> um, I wanted to actually talk about Haley Rosso um, because the notorious Haley Rosso, yeah, notorious. Everyone's just be notorious now. Yeah, no, I want to talk about Haley Rosso. I, I was obviously everyone knows she she broke her back and that's been a difficult injury that she's been dealing with what i didn't hear anything about (laughs) this i'm gonna have strong opinions about how people (laughs) react to this um 
she broke her back. She was had to stay in Washington. It, it was it took a while to even come back to Portland. Was in a wheelchair when she was at the Thorns games, and is now back in Australia. And is going to play in the W League season. Um, although she, I think, is still working her way back from her injury recovery. But there was an article this week, I, I think, out of Australia um, that went in, a really good article. I, she shared it for anyone looking to, to find it um, that went into like a lot of depth about her process back. And, and it was really interesting. But the point from it that I hadn't been thinking enough about, I think, that I pulled out of there is her mom and her um, both talking about how she was carried off the field after the injury. It's a back <laughs> injury and she's taken off on not a hardboard, just a basic stretcher, yep. no neck support whatsoever, just taken off, put on the side of the field for a while in excruciating pain, just lying on the side of the field and then taken off on the same stretcher, finally into the tunnel. And I hadn't thought enough about this, but I am now really upset that that is what occurred because given that she broke her back it sounds like there's no going to be no issues in her injury that come from the way the medical treatment went um after she sustained the injury on the field but given that it was a back injury and there was yeah. no support on her neck and, and they weren't thinking about these things and taking them to consideration when they were bringing her off the field that's really problematic <laughs> I, I mean if she had sustained some sort of um, the injury had ended up being worse or she developed complications because of that, uh, the NWSL would be completely at fault. And, and so I think this is something that we need to talk about more and look more into. And the NWSL needs to, you know, there needs to always be a set rules and set procedures, no matter what stadium you're at, in terms of how to deal with certain players, depending on what medical issue arises. And I'm not saying right they're not in okay. place, but they're the don't feel i don't feel like they were followed appropriately in the situation well, God, let's let's hope that's the case i mean yeah the worst case scenario is the one that you just mentioned that they were followed and those are the procedures yeah. no you need to have her immobilized exactly so i i think i mean i think this is something i'm going to try to look into a little bit more um with the league at least over time and something i would like to talk to Haley about more but even it, that aside i, I think Putting more emphasis on that aspect is important because that should not happen, especially for a player dealing with that type of injury. Yeah, I'm kind of glad that Haley and her mom talked about this because this is the type of issue that I really can't talk about too much until they talk about it because it's a personal health issue. It deals with a lot of things that become complicated. This is an area that absolutely you have to be cautious about people's personal health information. And in this scenario, I don't know what the procedures are. I don't know what was available to the people at uh, in Boyd's, Maryland that day. But geez, even if you knew at the time that this injury was more about pain than actual long-term effect... Why take the chance? I don't know. I, I, I feel like I'm I feel like I'm not a medical health professional because I'm not a medical health <laughs> professional. But it certainly makes me feel very uneasy and it, it continues to make me thankful that her injury wasn't worse. Because yeah. if it was if it was something else that wasn't what it ended up being, woof could have been bad. Yeah, and she, uh, I mean, her mom clearly was uh, upset about it. And she, even with the comments she made in the article that, that I read, was uneasy. And she she's much more of a medical professional than neither of yes, us. Yes, yes. Uh, <laughs> I wonder if that's what she was thinking. <laughs> what if she was giving advice at the time? It's like, no, do not turn me over until you have me strapped to a board. Like she's yeah. using all of her education to inform the process. I'm glad to see that Haley is back doing her recovery in Australia. 
hopefully we'll get to see her at some point this W League season. It does sound like that between the travel back to Australia and the transition between leagues that they're extending the timetable a little bit on her recovery. Don't know that for sure. It appears that's what it is. But it is good to see we've gotten to the point that we can complain about the process rather than having to continue to live in the process. My hot take is nowhere near as serious. I don't even know if it's a hot take. We've got to come up with another name for this segment because we never have hot takes. Like taking care of people with broken backs is not a hot take. (laughs) But this one is a little bit more argumentative because as the regular season starts to end for the Major League Soccer team, we start to look at next season. Jamie's just alluded to a little bit. Will Dyron Espria be around next year? Will Jack Barnby be around next year? One of the places that I became concerned with last week because I had to write, didn't have to, I wrote a story about it was the fullback depth. We talk about Zarek Valentin has established himself and then Jorge Fiafania has been brought back in and Alvis Powell has had some great moments this season. And even Marco Farfan said, hey, quietly, I've gotten more MLS minutes this year than last year, which is true, but it'd be nice if he had a pathway to have even more minutes next year. So I think the Timbers have to make some hard decisions with their fullback depth chart. I'm not even sure what the decision would be. Do you keep Alvis Powell and not bring back Zarek Valentin? Do you trade him? Do you sell Alvis Powell? Do you? I think Jorge Villafania is a little bit easier decision to make because you just brought him back. But there needs to be a path for Marco Farfan's development to continue. Maybe that's playing more time at T2 next year. I don't know. He is only 19 now. He's going to be 20 soon, or maybe he's already 20. I can't remember. Anyway... I think this offseason that there should be more time carved out next year for Marco Fanfan with the Major League Soccer Club. Yeah, I, I don't disagree with that uh, premise, um, which, by the way, Marco is 19. We really apparently should just have the ages of everyone. I'm 50-50 right now. <laughs> I got Jack right. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I... I absolutely agree that there needs to be more of a path for Marco, who's done well overall. He's had, I mean, he has had definitely had some up and down performances, but he's a young player and you can see the potential and you know he, with more minutes, he's just going to get better and he can clearly hold his own at this level. So, yeah, I agree. Farfan needs to, there needs to be more of a path for him to get minutes. But at the same time, I'm not sure what you do about the fullback depth. I don't think given Alvis Powell's season and given all the time the Timbers have invested in him that they're going to want to get rid of him at this point. Mm-hmm. I think they probably still see him as the, the fullback on the right side with more upside when he's playing at his best. Yeah. Zarek, unless you know he Zarek's gets a big so raise or something next year and something happens with the salary cap issues, is an affordable, incredibly good utility guy to have at fullback who can start, who has shown he can start, but can also be just a really good guy on either side that you can have as a depth piece. Um, and like you said, they just brought Jorge Villafania in. And so I think it might come down to less about getting rid of one of those players and more about pushing Zarek more to be a right-sided player and making sure that Marco is going to have that opportunity to be the second left back. Yeah, maybe you're right. I just think that I think it's a shame because from the outside, you can say that this was a lost year for Marco Farfan. But I do think that he has, just with the level of competition in the squad, the way he's had to go down to T2 and be a more dominant force on the left side of that attack to be an impact player, not just a steady player, an impact player there. I think he has taken a step forward this year. The problem is I can't envision a step forward next year unless he gets double, triple the MLS minutes that he's got now. I think he has 590-something minutes so far this year. So he needs to get into that range where he's starting 10 games and not four. And that's entirely possible next year. But 
it might require a decision, or like you said, it might not. Either way, a path needs to carve, be carved for him going forward, I think. Shall we talk about the Thorns in uh, national team qualifiers? We've got U.S. versus Canada on Wednesday night from Texas, I believe, is in Frisco, Texas, yes. is where it is. Um, the U.S. beat Jamaica to advance to the final. Canada beat Panama. Beat is almost euphemistic because there's more of a pummeling on yeah. both sides. But they both qualified for the World Cup. They both did. So why does this game matter? It kind of doesn't, except for you get to say you're CONCACAF champions, which we know every team will laud for four years. Actually, Canada might, and they <laughs> probably should if they do. But I looked it up today. I, I believe, if I remember correctly, the U.S.'s all-time record against Canada is 46-3-7. and yeah, I mean, this will be the. This should be the first competitive game, really, for either of these teams. Canada had a, a few closer games in the group mm-hmm. stage than the U.S. did. Um, the U.S. just hasn't conceded a goal yet, and it has pummeled every single team they've played in this yeah. tournament so far. This game should be closer. The U.S. should still win. I, I think if Canada wins, there's going to be a lot of talking points coming out of this about where the U S actually is. This is more (laughs) of a challenge in in terms of showing where the U S is at versus all the other teams they play that just weren't any challenge for them. But I expect the U S to win. I I, I don't expect this game to be all that crazy competitive, but I, I guess it's a good opportunity to see two teams that are more on par go yeah. up against each other. I mean, Canada is a legit second-tier power in world soccer. Yeah. If the U.S. loses to them, it's going to be a surprise. But honestly, compared to the the wealth of evidence we have on the U.S. program to date, the U.S. would have to lose a couple of games like this yeah. for me to change their point of view. I think it's almost insulting to Canada to think that if they did win, it should be a huge identity crisis for U.S. soccer. No, Canada is a good team. They shouldn't beat the U.S. If the U.S. plays their best, it should be 4-1, to 3-1. to one. But Canada beating the U.S. is not the biggest shock in the world. That being said, it only brings me back to the original point. Like, does this game really matter in the big picture? I think the answer is no. But anytime U.S.-Canada plays, you not only get to see them play, but you get to see Christine Sinclair, who is now within eight goals of having yeah. the international goal-scoring record by herself. She has four goals this tournament in four games, and she can add a goal at any time. As we know, she's Christine Sinclair. <laughs> so that'll be a reason to watch. Another reason to watch will be the three Thorns players on the U.S. side, although we're likely to only see two of them on Wednesday. Those two being Lindsey Horan, who has not only been a consistent starter during this tournament, but has been playing a little higher up the field than we're used to her normally playing, and then Tobin Heath, who has been the regular starter at right wing. Anything changed from last show regarding those two? If anything, no. it just seems like they're solidifying their place even more. Yeah, I think they're solidifying their place even more. I think Lindsay, I think Jill has said she wants her to score even more goals. We've not necessarily seen that, but I think in terms of providing assists, um, she's done that fairly consistently consistently in this tournament. I think the exciting thing about Lindsay Horan, and this, I actually got into a discussion with Jonathan Tannenwald on Twitter about this two weeks ago, how Jill Ellis had said that the one thing that she wants Lindsay Horan to work on more is her shooting from beyond the box. And I was having a discussion with somebody about this over the last week about, you know, Lindsay is not, was never bad at shooting from distance. But the thing is, she wasn't at like Megan Rapinoe's level. She wasn't at Tobin Heath's level. And the exciting thing about Lindsay Heath, Lindsay Heath, <laughs> Lindsay Horan is you can now go to her in any facet of her game and go, be like Megan Rapino, be like Tobin Heath. Even if that's not what you're going to make your money on, you in every aspect of your game should be expected to be as good as anybody else in the world. And I never really thought about it like that, but that's kind of scary that these aren't weaknesses of hers. It's just that 
you're not 10 out of 10. Why aren't you 10 out of 10? Yeah. What a crazy life that is. Yeah. No, I, I am really excited to see Lindsay Aran play at her first World Cup next year because I am excited to see how much more she's going to grow between now and then. I'm excited to ha- let her use her French more often. <laughs> it's been a while now. Ever since Amandine left. That's the left. main reason. Send her, send her to France so she can practice her French. What if she just did all of her social media in French d- during the next World Cup? It would be tremendous. I suppose. I suppose so. And then she would have people like Amandine making fun of her accent. Um, Tobin Heath, I don't even know if there's anything else to say about her other than the fact that coming into this tournament, I think there was a reasonable debate because neither her nor Mallory Pugh had really been healthy at the same time as to which one of them was the starter. And I think it's clear that Tobin Heath is seen as part of Jalalis' starting 11 at this point. Yes, absolutely. As it should be. <laughs> um, so, listener question from Heath Mauger. What should Thorns fans be on the lookout for in the coming Australian W League season? Um, so, we haven't had official announcements of this, but we do know from Australia's teams announcing things that Celeste Bure will be back in Australia on the same team as Haley Rasmo. Rasso Brisbane, I believe, was the team. Yeah. Um, there are a couple of other Thorns players that will be down there. We know the Australians will be, Caitlin Ford will be with Sydney, Ellie Carpenter with, will be with Canberra, um, and there are going to be more announcements to come. But it's going to be pretty much the same as last year. You're going to have a, a good, healthy slice of the Thorns roster down there, enough for you to be able to follow it and actually be pretty invested if you want to. Yeah, I, like you said, I haven't heard all the players going. I know Brent Eckersham went last year. Um, I would assume Emily Sonnet will not be going this year because of the point that she's on with the National League, but you never know. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know the situations yet. So we... No, that's a good assumption. It was kind of shocking last year that she got back into the national team because that was the first time I remember since NWSL started that a player both had gone down there and got called into January camp. Yeah, so I'm, it's possible. I mean, we'll see um, what other announcements come, but I, I think that yeah, for Thorns fans, as it has been for the last few years, there's going to be plenty to watch in terms of players um, that will comp- be competing and likely be competing for championships uh, in the Australian W League. Um, Fashionable Anarchist kind of building off this said who's going where. We kind of um, talked about who we know. Um, and how is the rehab, rehab going for injuries? Um, I mean, obviously, I think the main injury is Haley Rosso. Um mm-hmm. Trying to think if there's anyone Catherine else. Reynolds. Yeah, Catherine Reynolds, um, who said she was making progress last mm-hmm. time I talked to her. But you maybe you can give a better update on that. In terms of Rosso, I think from what she's posted, she's been on a bike. Uh, and so it sounds like she's making progress, but is not yet uh, at the point where she's back on the field. Actually, I can't update on um, anything beyond what Haley said in public. And it has nothing to do with like secret. I'm releasing information that needs to stay private. It's just that when players go away, clubs tend to have very limited contact with them. Uh, during, for the players that are in town, they are still around. They come and work out. But for most players, particularly in the first weeks after the season, particularly when you've got personal things to take care of that you had to put off during the season, you're not around that much. Uh, Catherine Reynolds was already making pretty good progress by the end of the regular yeah. season to the point where if she had four or six more weeks, we might have been able to, well, she would have had to be pulled off the field at that <laughs> point. So it, I think that health is less of a concern with her just what is she, where is she going in her career at this point? Hopefully she's going to be back because she's super, super important to this team. Okay, let's go ahead and transition out of our brief Thorns section and transition back to looking at Sunday. Very important game, obviously, for the Timbers. Even if they qualify for the playoffs, it's important to keep their top four hopes alive 
RSL, we know I don't think RSL is very good. So, Jamie, how many goals are the Timbers going to win by on Sunday? <laughs> what if I said lo- a loss after that? Uh, no, I am. <laughs> that should have been your hot take. Yeah, that, I am going to predict a Timbers win. Um, I, I think I'd be silly not to after last week, but we'll see what happens. Um, I'm going to predict the Timbers are going to win this game 2 nothing. So it's going to be a, a pretty... Uh, and RSL playing on short rest, obviously, I think is going to be an Im- impact as well. It's going to be a pretty sound victory, and it's going to put the Timbers continue to be in a pretty good position. Yeah, uh, but that sounds like kind of a typical Timbers home performance that we think about, like the Toronto FC game. Uh, we don't think about that game very much because Toronto actually rotated some players and it was midweek and everything, but that was a pretty, well, aside from the first 10 minutes where they hit the post, a pretty decent performance. So I wouldn't be surprised if the performance played out the same way. For me, boy, I hope I get a decent amount of points for this if it happens, <laughs> even though it is something that under normal circumstances shouldn't get points. But it's been a little bit of time since Diego Valeri scored a goal. I'm going to predict that he's going to use this last home game of the season to get back onto the score sheet to keep up or keep a little bit ahead of Sebastian Blanco in that column. I'm going to predict that, you know what, I'm going to add a caveat to this. He's not only going to score a goal, he's going to score from open play. So if he scores from a penalty kick, I will say this. No, if it's a free kick, out a free kick, I will still count that. Just a non-penalty kick goal he has to score. And I think part of why I'm doing this is that Mike Pecky bizarrely made such a big deal about Diego Valeri after the last game. Oh, yeah, Valeri this, Valeri that. As if Sebastian Blanco didn't <laughs> exist and didn't just put two goals on him at home. So I think Valeri is going to justify that hype this Sunday and get back on the score sheet. All right. Uh, so I guess all we have left is the fantasy update. Uh, in third place is still uh, Jamie B. Goldberg FC with uh, 1,170 points. Armin Terrors is in second place with 1,181 points, and Blood, Bath, and Beyond in first place with 1,194 points. This is like the top of the Bundesliga. It never changes at this point. It hasn't changed recently. Although Bayern Munich has looked like crap this last month. But we can talk about that on our Bayern Munich podcast. Yeah, that that other podcast that we have. Um, (laughs) That's all for this week. You can find us every week on uh, OregonLive.com, Stumptown Footy, and and Timbers.com, or you can subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher. And until next week, take care.